Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom is built for your psychology and your biology, meeting you where you are. Noom Weight uses psychology. That's why they say losing weight starts with your brain. But it also takes into account your unique biological factors, which also affect weight loss success. The program helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have cravings. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Plus, check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 213. Uh, a lot of big stuff brewing over at the Nerdist TV channel on Monday. The final episode for the first season of All-Star Celebrity Bowling has Team Nerdist Bowling breaking bad. We went to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico and bowled uh, against uh, Brian Cranston, Aaron, Aaron Paul, and the gang. And it was a phenomenally good time. I'm going to say the best time anyone's ever had in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Not that anything is wrong with Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a lovely town, um, but it was bowling against Team Breaking Bad. Come on. We could have been in any city, and that would have been the most fun thing to do in that city. So it's not like I'm really making fun of Albuquerque, New Mexico, but um, a lot of people have not told Albuquerque that uh, Route 66 isn't really a thing anymore that we have freeways now but that's fine that's fine it's a good it's a nice town people are nice there and that that's creaking you're hearing is the sound of the backpedaling that's what that is that is the sound of the pedals going backwards and me now saying albuquerque what a rocking time and maybe they'll put that on the uh maybe they'll put that on the license plates katie they could put that in the license they could put it on the sign, and then rock and time would just be all the rocks that you see everywhere, because you're in a fucking desert. Um, so, but then rocking could also mean like, you know, we'll just get, you know, like, get like Kip Winger or someone to do a song. New Mexico! It's newer than Mexico! A rocking good time! Uh, Mark Marin's from New Mexico, if that tells you anything. <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> he's <laughs> I'm kidding <laughs> he's way less cranky than he used to be Mark Barron's a sweetheart uh, he was hilarious on the last episode of All-Star Celebrity Bowling if you haven't seen it um, uh, so I would like to this is a very exciting uh, sponsorship for me on this episode of the Nerdist Podcast this episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by are you ready for this is brought to you by Comedy Bang Bang. <laughs> We're, the podcasts are are having sex with each other, just like on Friends when the when when the different cast members would cross pollinate. Um, 
Comedy Bang Bang, the television show. Uh, Goddamn, that Scott Ackerman is a genius, and uh, he has taken his podcast to IFC, which is a phenomenal channel, uh, also the channel of Portlandia. June 8th at 10 p.m., 9 central on IFC is the premiere of Comedy Bang Bang. You absolutely have to watch that show. Uh, it is, uh, it's sort of like, Scott was on our podcast, and he sort of described it as, it's kind of, it's like a fake talk show-ish uh, it's just basically an absurd half-hour comedy show that's loosely structured like a talk show. But, I mean, Scott has amazing guests. First of all, Reggie Watts is the house band. Um, Zach Alfanakis, Amy Poehler, Seth Rogen, these are all people who are going to be guests on the show. I was not a guest on the show, but that's fine. I don't have to be on everything. You know, I go to New Mexico. That's what I do. I'm a guest in New Mexico. Uh, but Comedy Bang Bang is going to... I mean, I would be telling you about this even if it was not sponsoring the show. Because I believe in it, and I believe in Scott, and I believe in in uh, I way believe in comedy. Bang bang! So uh, that is Friday, June eighth, ten p.m. nine central on IFC. Comedy so nice they banged it twice. Scott Ackerman says, and uh, and then I think I'm actually gonna. I'm sure I'll be performing at the Tuesday Bang Bang show sometime in the next month or so. But uh, anyway, that is our sponsorship for this episode. And I would like to say that this episode is Eric McCormick. I went to New York, New York. And sat down with him uh, at where he, he's doing uh, Gore Vidal's The Best Man uh, on Broadway. And I went to the theater uh, in his dressing room and actually uh, talked to him for, for like an hour. And Eric's great. Super funny guy. Uh, really cool. The cast of the, best, uh, of the Best Man on Broadway is insane. It's like Candace Bergen and James Earl Jones and Angela, Angela Lansbury and John Larroquette. Uh, and and Michael McKeon before he got hit by a car, and now hopefully he's okay. I think he's okay. He might be back on. He might be back on the uh, on the best the best man. But uh, amazing cast, and and Eric was a terrific guy. Uh, also, Perception is a show that Eric has coming out this summer on TNT, and uh, you should watch that. Watch that too. Just start watching all the stuff. Would you if if you just watched everything I asked you to watch, this relationship's gonna be fine. I think that's that's what I've determined. Uh, you got anything you want to add, Katie? No. Thank, thank you for saying no. She shook her head for 10 seconds and then realized that head shaking does not a podcast make. So here we go. The Nerdist episode uh, number 213 with Eric McCormick. Now entering Nerdist.com. much it it just starts okay there's, there we go I'm, there's no real there's no real wind up and podcast and i hope we're podcasting and i'm texting at the same time oh my god no you're not supposed this to do that it's illegal the, they tell you it's illegal you're not supposed to do that that's what they call uh, multitasking it's dangerous 12 45. oh come on i'm slow at this technology there we go all right that's all hello Hello, podcasters. <laughs> very, it was a very harrowing tale to get here because I had to get batteries for these guys, these little recording devices. And you're right off Times Square, and I went into one of those souvenir shops. First of all, I uh, got yelled at because they didn't want me to bring a Starbucks thing in there. The guy was like, you can't bring that in here. 
I'm like, well, am I going to damage the bedazzled iHeart NYC <laughs> shirts with the flaming eagle bursting out of the chest of the Statue of Liberty? I would have thought in New York it was actually Duraguer to take Starbucks everywhere. <laughs> that really you're nobody unless you've got a Starbucks mug or cup. Well, the problem is I feel like I blame everything on the fact that I live in Los Angeles. It's like, oh, they're just going to think I'm an asshole from Los Angeles. i got to bring my fucking coffee everywhere. Uh but in the end, I was able to sway him. Now, if you were really an asshole from Los Angeles, you'd be carrying your water everywhere. Special vitamin water. Yep, that's right. Uh, would be would be what you'd have. I I just I just I need water enhanced with things. I need electrolytes. I need smartness in my water. Uh, I need I see throat coat. That is a lifesaver. Oh, come on, of course, throat coats. We're filming this, right? Or yeah, this is all. This is all, yeah. Hold that right up to the microphone. I don't, I don't, I don't cover that. <laughs> uh, God, isn't it so pathetic, but it's so true that this eight shows a week thing, I mean, you just, it's, it's always, it becomes with a voice. Even I, I thought it would be better because I'm not singing. I'm, it's not a musical, this show I'm doing. But it's not. It's, just, it's still, uh, you're, it's all about your throat. You wake up in the morning going, ha, ah, 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 and drinking nine cups of throat cuts. I better not talk today. I better not talk. So fortunately, you're doing a podcast. <laughs> Uh, it is, but it's all, have you taken voice lessons? Have you taken, have, they, have you, have you learned how to, how to properly speak? You know what it is? It's not the eight shows a week. It is the, uh, eight bars a week after the show. Sure. It's the restaurants. It's the, cause I, with a show like this, I thought I gotta get people to come here. Like I got a lot of, I'm from Canada. I got a lot of Canadian friends. I thought they've got to see the show. This is how, how many times does this group of people come together? James Earl Jones and Angela Lansbury and John Larroquette and Candace Bergen. And then they come down, but of course, then it's like I can't just go home. Now we got to go to a restaurant, <laughs> and there's lots of loud yelling and talking and New Yorking, and, uh, and then I wake up the next morning and I go, oh, oh I can't damn do it. it, where's my throat coat? <laughs> Remember when you were 20 and you yeah. didn't think about those things? You're just like, ah, I'm Wolverine. I'll heal up it's by the so, morning. So true. And then it doesn't always yeah. doesn't doesn't last that way forever. No, it does not. Um, this is an uh, this is an amazing cast that you're working with. Like you said, James Earl Jones, Angela Lansbury, John Larroquette, uh, Candace Bergen, uh, Michael McKean. Michael McKean, I know, which is uh, as exciting to me as any of those names because you know, I, Spinal Tap is it's in our DNA. Have you talked to him about it? Oh yeah, and it's there's certain people you know I've, I've had a chance you know from all the guest stars we had on Will and Grace and stuff. Just, I've had a chance to get to know a lot of the big names that I've always loved. But there's certain ones. Where you think I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay in wait here. I'm gonna earn it. Like a predator. I'm gonna earn it. Like Sidney Pollack, but my dad on Will and Grace. And I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait like till the end of the week before I start asking a thousand tootsie questions. Right. But you know, <laughs> but uh, with Michael, I thought I gotta get him on my side. We have a casual lunch between rehearsals, and then I'm all of a sudden go spinal tap nuts. That's and he was totally open to it, of course. But. You know. You know, it it is. I mean, you you do have an advantage over most fans, being that he's on your turf when he's on your show. So it's a little safer than if you run up to him in a restaurant and you're like, you know, and you just start you're quoting totally. a David St. Hubbins lines at him. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I like to. I always like to with guys like that quote the the stuff they don't hear much. Right. You know, the really the real B side kind of jokes that they're like, I can't believe you remember that. The other day, there was a woman here. I think she's married to a big producer. Um, she's in her 60s. But I, I, as soon as I saw her, I thought, you're the secretary from the King of Comedy that Rupert Pupkin keeps running into at the network. Oh, I mean, wow. You'd have to be a real geek to know who I'm talking about. But she keeps getting his name wrong. Oh, hi, Mr. Pumpkin. Oh, Mr. Pubnik. Whatever. And I said, oh, my God, you're the secretary. And I thought she was going to keel over and die. She clearly hasn't been acting for 30 years. Oh, wow. 
but it was so exciting. I love that. I love when you can pinpoint those little things that, uh, like, El- it's last night, Ellen Foley came up. There was, oh, uh, yeah, wow. yeah. Of course. Uh, she, I didn't see her. I saw her several years ago, but... Um, she was in the original night. She was on night. She was the original on Night Court, right? No, Ellen Foley was. Well, maybe she was. Maybe you're right. But she, you know, her big thing is she was the voice on on the Meat Love album. She's right. a Paradise with the Dashboard Light, and she's that woman. And but she went on to have these little tiny roles. And she had one in Tootsie, I think two lines, and she had uh, she sang half a song in Hair. And but I just happened to know that stuff. And so when I met her, she came backstage at Music Man years ago. And she, hi, I'm Ellen Foley, and I was like, oh my god! And I started naming all these obscure credits, and you could just see how excited she was. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, it's it's great because because when we do things like that, we just we don't we don't know if anyone's ever going to see them. We don't know if they matter in the world. You know, clearly, well, Me Love album matters in the world, but the little the littler stuff, you know. But it's always it's also nice too for people to see that people they know are fans of things, and that yeah. you I don't know I, I guess you know I get really frustrated at the whole. You're like, I'm sitting on an airplane, and there's an Us magazine in the airplane thing, and you open it up, and they're like, stars eat food, too! They're just like us! They're just like us! And then you kind of go, are you fucking kidding me? They're ba-. But then you meet you meet people who are famous, and you're like, you know stuff? Like, it really, there is kind of a weird thing that you forget that people you yeah. see all the time, two-dimensionally, are human, three-dimensional well, creatures. For me, I, I with, with movie stars, or say, even more so with, with music stars... I don't know if they watch television or not. Sure. I don't know if if eight years of the sitcom even registered for them. So right. I don't walk up with any sort of expectation. I have no sense of entitlement. I just kind of go, "Hi, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm my name's Eric," and you know, half the time it's like, "Oh my hi," and then you know, Jack Nicholson looks at you and goes, "Yeah, pass me those uh, nuts." I mean, it's, <laughs> it, 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 nothing, nothing. You know, it doesn't it didn't register in his world at all. But you never know who it is and who it isn't. Like yesterday right. I was having lunch with a place and I saw Diane Keaton with Carol Kane. So for those of us that worship Annie Hall, it's like the double, it's the double win. Right there. And uh, I, I, I met Carol once, so I used that as my excuse. And I'm like, hi Carol. Oh, hi, hi Eric, how are you? And, and then there's, there, there she was, there was Diane Keaton. And I just, I thrust out my hand and said, I, 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 I had no words, I was so excited. And of course she was lovely and great. Oh, hi. But it was, for, I, I thought there was going to be that moment where there was no recognition. Have you had that before? Where sure. and, and usually the way that it happens is you're with someone who's introducing you in a way that you don't want to be introduced. They right. go, this is Eric. He's on Will and Grace. Yeah. And then if there, if it's just like a miss. Yes. And you're like, I didn't tell him to say that. I, I just... The usual response is, oh, I don't have a television. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Does that make you more advanced? Or a Luddite? <laughs> How am I supposed to congratulate you for being more uh, more better than me? I I don't I don't talk to people, I don't interact yeah. well. I always want to say I me me I have I mean I have a television I never watch it. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I use Bullshit. it. I use it to keep the lid on the recycling yeah. bin. I don't watch it. That's barbaric. Like at this point, it's like television. It's kind of earned its place in our home. Like, you don't have to pretend anymore. Like now more than ever. Like, it's just the proletariat class is yes. watching television. No. It's become, uh, it's become so freaking good, some of it, you know? So much television is great, yeah. But, a lot, but most of it's non-network television. No, totally. That's because the networks have totally given into the housewives of Poughkeepsie, you know, and, and, and they're all just 
awful. Yeah, and they're all and they're all successful because if Amer- that's what a good chunk of America wants to watch, okay, go ahead, watch. I I don't know what I I can't even. Well, you you really kind of surfed the last wave of the last era of of. Of good sitcoms, <laughs> and there's, then, you know, there's a couple of you know, Big Bang Theory is a great show, and but there's a few, and of course, Modern, Modern Family. family but, yeah. um, but in terms of that classic sort of way of doing it, uh, it kind of it's. There's a, I think there's a there's a bloom off the rose, or there's an innocence that is gone of some kind. I, I was just reading Warren Littlefield's book. Who, oh wow, uh, he wrote about that that period, which kind of for him began with Cheers and into Seinfeld because he was he was really the guy at NBC that allowed all those people to do it the way they did it and allowed um, Jerry and, and Larry David to make Seinfeld what it was and and his last big hurrah was Will and Grace before they mm-hmm. threw him out of the network uh, so he was a real hero to us but uh, it was amazing to see what how that happened and it happened by by suits staying out of it by, by creative people being allowed to be creative and, um, and it's hard it's lightning in a bottle it's hard to know if, if it's going to come back again. Everything is now single camera, and some of those, like you know, Thirty Rock and, and Modern Family, are fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not. Nothing. Nothing grabs a giant chunk of the market like they used to. The shows used to, because it was three. There were three, three channels, and a, a, a show. It was possible that a show could really grab America's attention, and it's yeah. harder and harder for that. Time. Well, especially you know with the sitcom format where they think. Well, it's uh, you write a bunch of jokes, and that's it. Oh man, I'm so upset that I I just had someone on the podcast recently, and I really wish I remember who it was. It's embarrassing, but they were talking about working on Will and Grace, and they said that they learned a lot from the writers on that show. Where you say, if you look at the page, there's no quote unquote jokes. It's all char- like because the characters are strong, so all the comedy comes out of the characters. If you look at it on the page, it just comes to life when one of you says it because you know, but because your characters are so strong. And they're like, it was such a different approach to writing. When I think about it, the one thing that was I always stuck out for me was that there were no exclamation marks. There was no italics. You know, they didn't tell us here's the crazy part. <laughs> Go up within the line. We, that it was. It was written. That's probably what this person was referring to. It just on. It it looked on page on the page like it sat there, but the jokes were were there. It was about us, yeah, sort of jumping up with them. And how long did it take you guys to figure out that dynamic? It was pretty fast because, uh, as you see in, in, in Littlefield's book, you know Jim Burroughs was a giant, giant part of that whole musty TV thing. He directed the, virtually the. the Pilots of every single one of those shows, from Frasier to Friends, and then got a paycheck and, every yeah. week. But in our case, he stayed with us. He did every single episode of Will and Grace. Did 195 episodes, Jeez. and uh, mm-hmm. he knew very early on that that the secret to to that was character and was story, and uh, and not just throwing more jokes at it. So yeah, we, we pretty early on got a chance to uh, to find our stuff. And did you feel like did you feel like the show? was pretty perfectly bookended are you happy with or were you like oh one more season or oh one less season or like were you pretty no happy? we were really happy we, you know it was things were starting to right near the end NBC was uh, was sort of falling apart we, we weren't getting the numbers that we uh, used to get so we were quite happy to say let's let's get out while the getting's good we did eight and uh, and that last season was, was there was some really good stuff and that was a lovely uh, series finale on that so it was it, it was all good I think we all left with a good sense of we did it just right. Yeah. 
I mean, it really is sort of the... Was comedy a thing that you set out to do, or was it just like, oh, I want to be an actor, okay, I'll do this sitcom? It was... I always, I always had the sort of dueling uh, influences, because I was... My first, earliest influences were Get Smart, and then mm. All the Family, and, you know, Warner Brothers crazy. It was always about comedy. But... I didn't see myself as a comedian, I, and I never did stand-up. I, was, I went right to theater school and got heavy into Shakespeare. and So all that stuff kind of went by the wayside uh, until I'd done years in the theater, and I was starting to get into television, and that's when, that's when Seinfeld came on. That's when I was really getting into Cheers, and that's when I was like, I, ooh, that looks good. Yeah. Well, that would, and, then, and then when Friends happened, I actually auditioned for... Uh, for Friends, for Schwimmer's, uh, David Schwimmer's part in Friends, <laughs> which I learned later on was a waste of time because, uh, as, as Jim Burroughs told me, honey, honey, they wrote the part for Schwimmer, you're wasting your time. But, <laughs> you know, SAG but, rules say they have to audition a certain number of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Forget your dreams. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sweet dreams. <laughs> but, uh, so, it, my dreams started to change, particularly once I came down to L.A., because to, uh, uh, I was doing a drama right before, I was, uh, 94, 95, I did a... A western, a lonesome dove, where I was. Oh right, of course. The spin-off series from the miniseries, and and it was I was the bad guy with the beard and the long. I mean, it was every, total hundred and eighty degrees from what what I'd eventually become. But uh, when I finally got down there and started auditioning for things, that's when Friends was totally on fire, and that's when Seinfeld was literally must see TV, it, even before they made up the phrase, I think. And that's when I said, "Oh, that would be good," and so it was. It was amazing, particularly when I realized that Burroughs was going to be involved. I was like, "This is I've, I've had this dream. I had it last night." What was your What was your audition process? Are you, are you, are you Do you consider yourself a good auditioner? I do, actually. In fact, I've often said I would never want to be an acting teacher. I never want to try to tell anybody else how to act. But I think I could be a good auditioning teacher. There's not enough of that, and it's a totally yeah. artificial environment. That I think a lot of people would probably be fine once they got the job and they were relaxed. But that weird. Just strange lab experiment of auditioning totally. is crazy. But I think the secret is absolutely knowing that's what it is. You yeah, know, you can't you can't make excuses and go, well, I, I, uh, this is not natural. This is not organic. It's like, no, of course it's not. It's absurd. Particularly when you get to the network level and you might be getting a lead on a show, a show that will be filmed, and yet nonetheless you are going in and performing for thirty people in a boardroom. They're always boardrooms. <laughs> Nothing about that. It's it's like, a, they're like a fucking jury on a murder yeah, trial. It's a miracle anybody gets cast. But uh, but if you know that that's what that is, and you know that you're a bit of a, a monkey, and uh, it's I, I can be really fun. I can be really fun. It, it it is you know I I've, I you so you see some people and you go God those. That guy just works on thing after thing after thing after thing, and then you're you know you sit outside a waiting room and you hear him in auditioning. You're like, oh fuck, that's why that guy works all the yeah. time. That yeah. those are the worst, by the way, when you can hear people on the other side of the door. Oh, totally, totally. I remember being in, I, I when I finally sort of started to get out of theater and into television, kind of early '90s. I was in Toronto, where I'm from, and I moved to Vancouver because there was so much work going on in Vancouver at the sure. time. Post Twenty One Jump Street. Yes, the original Twenty One. The, the 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 big the big northern migration. Yeah, and they realized it was cheaper to shoot and it was productions. All the Stephen J. Cannell stuff. All these. I was on a show my first year there called uh, 
Street Justice. <laughs> I was Carl Weathers' new partner. Oh, I remember Street that. Yeah, I remember. And it's just a, a series of, and everyone was in some day glow outfits because that was uh, <laughs> that was the time. Remember the show that was shot in LA called Silk Stockings. Yeah, that was a huge hit for USA. Yeah, a huge hit for USA, and I was I think I did a guest star on that once, and it was just it's all it's all lit with neon lights, and everyone was in it was just all. Oh, it was literally Jesus one. Christ. It was one. Uh, nude scene away from being like a Red Shoe Diary. Yep. That's what I was like. Oh, if there was just a sex on a pool table with a sax solo, yes. it's a Red Shoe Diary. There's a lovely actress on it named Mitzi Capture, I think was her name. Was a, uh, She and I had a fencing scene. I don't know. Anyway, I got to Vancouver, but I, I, I remember coming in there and seeing there's a lot of guys that had had their episode of Jump Street and maybe they'd had their episode of whatever the hell else was going on. <laughs> And they all felt pretty fucking uh, <laughs> entitled, you know? And nobody was doing it. Nobody had memorized anything. They were sitting there with their sides. And, you know, and I'd go in for off book and get the part. And I'm this asshole from Toronto. And literally some guy cornered me on a bus on the way to an audition and said, so you're, you're like coming in here and taking all our roles. I'm like, <laughs> and they're your roles because why? They were written in by guys in L.A. So, but you're allowed to, they're yours because you were born in Vancouver. Like, I think it's the competition part. I, I hate the competition in general, uh, but the competition for roles is very real, and that, uh, you know, get in there. you got to get in there and do it. Toronto's a nice town. I really like I really like Toronto a lot. Uh, uh, you have uh, a clean city that is pretty well organized. You have a really good street hot dogs, which I hear they're yes. doing away with. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a mayor, and he's gone what? crazy, and he's trying to get rid of bicyclists, and he's they're getting, oh, rid, of, that mayor, they're getting yeah, yeah. rid of street hot dogs, and they're taking yeah. all that good... I I, get, I I was performing in Toronto a couple months ago, and people were telling me about it. I was getting mad for you. Like, who the uh, fuck does that guy think he is? I'm going to tell him. Well, I forget his name now. Yeah. Uh, um, Claude. Uh, but uh, the, even better, Vancouver, is it? There's the best hot dog I've ever had. On, on Broadway Ave in in, uh, in Vancouver, right outside the Future Shop. I don't know why. Uh, there it is. That's about as specific as I can get. If you're in, the, if you're in Vancouver, Vancouver. Outside the Future Shop, incredible hot dogs. I just remember walking through Vancouver. Their drug use is very just out in the open. No one really cares. They seem yeah. fine with it. And then guys are on the street uh, offering the way that they, they ask if you want to buy pot is they go, you need Robert Plant tickets? Really? Yeah, all up and down this one. I'm not a drug guy. I was just doing comedy shows there. I'm like, no, I don't need to. Yeah, not neither am I. But it's was it 420? Is that that's the big 420? Thing? Yeah, 420. 420 is like a, a huge celebration, like a religious celebration. And people and, and their everyone goes with their kids, and it's full on outdoor <laughs> marijuana. Sure. It's amazing. It's, yeah. I, I, like I, I, I leave the country for twenty years and look. What and happens. then look what happens. Jesus. You need to go back there and straighten these Canadians out. It's nice, though. I mean, I've, I've talked to other Canadians who, you know, are, they're a little more resentful that America, you know, they sort of, they sort of, he sort of felt like, you know, we kind of learn about your culture, and you don't really know that much about our culture, and we're not just your fucking little brother yeah. up here. Yeah. You know, I mean, this sort of, you know, you're kind of in between this, you know, there's a little, there's a British influence, an American influence, a French influence, you know, so what, what is the Canadian's identity? What does it mean to be Canadian? I think that's, that's the, the funny thing is that we, we do get resentful that Americans don't know more about us, but then when we're cornered, we realize that we don't know that much about <laughs> us. We really don't. We, we're, and we, or we have to all admit that our history is not nearly as colorful and, and interesting. I mean, I, I learned everything I know about America through, like, the Warner Brothers cartoons, through, sure. you know, Bugs Bunny talking about Benedict Arnold or talking about George Washington, whatever it is. 
I got it very early on, and and not in an academic way. That's got it because your culture just is everywhere. It just it's all over everything. You can't help but learn something about it. Uh, whereas with Canadians, you got to dig. You got to find out. A lot of the names are kind of boring, and the stories don't add up to much. And so it's and it's a very spread out country. It's 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 a tenth the population of this country, and it's spread out over twice the land mass. Yeah. So it's not a un- it's it's becoming more so in the last twenty five years, but. When I was a kid, you were proud to be Canadian. You just weren't 100% sure what that meant. Right. Well, most of the land is probably not that inhabitable for large portions of the year. No. Like all of Saskatchewan. (laughs) I don't know if you've toured through Saskatchewan. (laughs) I have not toured through Saskatchewan. But uh, it's... No, people have, like, head to the big cities, and we're all sort of along the the border. So that's the other reason we get resentful. We're, We're so aware of American television. That's what we're brought up on and everything else that... When people said... A woman yesterday... Uh, we were getting a tour of the museum here in New York, and she said, do you have baseball in Canada? Mm, that's mm. a sour question. No, we did, we did in 92 and 93 when we won the World Series. <laughs> I guess we still have it. Of the world? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Basse. <Yeah>. Basse. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's always these questions. They're always from intelligent people. They're not from, like, idiots. They're just, it's just... Much of our culture just does not get discussed. You so you guys like eat food and go to the bathroom up in Canada, right? You Weirdly, food, uh, we eat food. Hmm. Nobody shits. I know. Uh, no, I don't. What? Yeah, nobody. Do you, it's it's. No, wait, this is an amazing story that you're breaking. We are too polite to shit anywhere because <laughs> uh, it's a filthy habit. That's you need free health care because of all of the <laughs> prolapsed organs uh, from not from not shitting. That's how nice Canadians yeah. are. I love that. I, I was a huge Warner Brothers fan. Huge, huge, huge. Um, were there any particular eras that you liked, or just sort of Bugs Bunny in general? Oh, is it, you know, anything before. I, I hate it when it went all kind of uh, t- like TV and, and when they started to edit it. Uh, I like sort of like f- that post-war, with, with like the 45 to 52, yeah. you know, the, uh, um, the Duck and Muck. Right. Duck and Muck is my, my favorite of all. Yeah, possibly. which we, we, we're where he's walks, drawing him in the... He yeah. walking on and... You're despicable. Uh, who's responsible for this? Yeah, this, is, yeah. <laughs> this is a close-up? A close-up, you jerk, a close-up! That's a pretty good daffy. <laughs> have, you done, have you done cartoon voiceovers? I, I, I do a kid's voice now uh, uh, on a show called Pound Puppies. Oh, nice. That's really what I'm here to promote. Pound I, Puppies... Fuck Broadway. If, I want to I talk about Pound Puppies on the hub. It, what, what's, your, what's your character's name? I'm Lucky. Uh, uh, Eric, if... Could I speak to Lucky for a moment, please? <laughs> well, uh, Lucky sounds pretty much like I sound, but but always kind of happy. Oh, Eric. Eric. You you have, how did you harness that? You have taken me <laughs> from this dressing room deep into the pound. <laughs> oh, the political struggles. No, I love I love I love voice over. I, I, I did I did cartoons. I did cartoons for years because it's just it's fun and there's yeah. no like you, you, there's no judgment, and you—it's just fun, and people are nice, and you know you don't—you don't have that same sense of like, I better better be more ironic so people don't think I'm not cool. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great gig. I, I think it's—I think it's fantastic. And some of the—I love this couple of guys that are like the hardcore voice guys that come in, and it's amazing what comes out of their mouths. It's fantastic. It is, and you really—it's—it's it's just a whole other kind of performance. Where you know when you're you're sort of tied to what you look like, 
Right. When you're a stage theater television film, because you, you're only, it's only so believable that you're going to be some character, but they are completely untethered, so they can be anything. Yeah. And some of those guys are mind blowing. I love when we're doing, you know, we're doing something, and I'm, I'm doing my character, and then all of a sudden they say, "Oh, oh, could you also be dog number three? He, he's like a pirate. <laughs> Go, you know, and it's, and it's fabulous because you can just do it. And anything about you, as you say, you're not tied at all to who you are." Or, what you sound. And it's hard not to do that Warner Brothers thing of like, oh, I'm going to base this character on some weird celebrity that I like. Right, right. Well, I remember, I, I, I've said this before, but, it, but it's so true that I think one of the key moments for me before I really realized that acting was a profession that you could be in and that, that was um, wondering what it meant at the end of every Warner Brothers cartoon when it said voice characterizations, Mel Blanc. It, it was like Greek to me. And then there was a show on in, this, in the late 60s, early 70s called You Asked For It. Mm -hmm. And it was people writing in with questions. And one of the questions was, what does that mean? Yeah. And they said, what it means is, is this guy right here. It's one guy. His name is Mel Blanc. And he does all the voices. And I just remember I was a nine or something. And I thought I was going to die that one guy did those voices. That's just amazing to me. And it's pretty shocking to see it come out of... The first time you see the yeah. voice come out of the human and he head, and they show this little, this little, you know, dumpy guy with a little mustache doing, doing them all, talking to himself, and it was. I thought, okay, and not that I went into voice, but I, it was a big turning point for me in terms of playing characters and uh, and doing voices. And well, Mel Blanc in particular just had that thing of not just picking really great character voices, but he could do like bugs. Pretending to be Daffy, yes. which is which is crazy multi-layer stuff. Where it's, where it's not yeah. quite Daffy. It's like this is what Bugs would sound like doing Daffy. Yeah, that was pretty mind blowing. June Foray was the lady version of right. that. Right, she did the old yeah the old lady, the old witch, that. and the. <laughs> That's right. Whenever she laughed, like the the, 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 the hair, little the hair, hair, hair pins, pins would the fly hair out. Here, <laughs> I wonder if that's. I always just assume now that you know kids now. Oh, do they even know the old Warner Brothers cartoons anymore? I don't know, because because when we were kids, we're about this. We're close to the same age. It was they was just on every day after school. Right, and I don't. Day. I don't. And know. they were they there was a, there was a guy in in Toronto that used to. Uh, he, he, he railed against the fact that they'd all been edited for television. So he would show the original uh, cartoons from 43 or 44, all of the, the propaganda cartoons. Oh, wow. The, the ones, super racist ones. The super racist ones and the super Hitler ones and that were just, that they simply weren't showing and he'd show them unedited and you'd go to a bar and he'd do three or four hours of Warner Brothers cartoons and you'd drink beers. It was great. But that's when I really realized that we were getting a a watered-down version a lot of the time. Yeah, because they weren't originally meant for kids. They were right. They were and just entertainment pieces before films. But I also loved that, I mean, like like with All in the Family or M.A.S.H., I was laughing at things I didn't really understand, but but it's okay. It's like my, my kid, who's nine, just came and saw The Best Man, just got the, the play I'm doing, and people were looking like, why would you bring a nine-year-old to this? But it doesn't matter that he doesn't get everything. It's something's going to sit in there and he's going to, years from now, say, who the hell is Grace Coolidge? And he's going to look it up or whatever, you know? And that's what I, I, I find now that I'll hear something 40 years later and go, that's what that Daffy Duck joke was. It sure. was just, it was such a period reference to Jack Benny or to Al Jolson. It was that, that, the, the great uh, one where Bugs is on the phone talking to a reporter about doing do a nerd, doing a nerdcast. Oh yeah, about, yeah. You know about how he uh, it's the one. Oh, we're the boys, the chorus. Well, I hope you know, they like the show. At one point when he's 
Elmer Fudd is supposed to be the big star of Hollywood yeah. is walking through the park and all these guys are auditioning for him and it's, it's Al Jolson going, Mammy, Mammy, yeah. you know, and then somebody else singing and I, who I guess was... There's an Eddie Cantor. I think there's an Eddie Cantor and then there's, there's a Bing Crosby, but none of them meant anything to me and, and Stephanie says, Bugs, Bonnie, what are you doing here with these? You, I want you in my eye. But, <laughs> what are you doing here with these bums? <laughs> these bums. But I always remember as a kid going, one day I'll understand this, uh, I'll get it. I just, I just knew that I would, but it was, you know. Well, kids are amazing. I mean, kids are so emotionally sensitive that they get they they understand right. the tone of something even if they don't know the reference. But I think it's the re- that's the reason that survives, and I think it's the reason that like I can watch SpongeBob now with my kid. He's a little over it from you know, say a year ago, but it's really funny, and, and it's funny in a kind of grown up way. Yeah. He might be able to look back on it one day and go, "Oh man, I knew that was funny, but I didn't understand the delivery was." Uh, or that Squidward is like this, the gay neighbor or whatever. He'll like it again. He'll like it again. Yeah. It'll 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 come back around. All that stuff. I don't know. I never went through a period where I was like, cartoons aren't cool. Like I watched them yeah. all the way up through high school, through college, after college. Got all of the you know the war the stacks of Warner Brothers cartoons yeah. and and just realized I think literally yesterday like. Time is moving so fast now that I have not watched a Warner Brothers cartoon in like five years. Wow. And it, it kind of I hurt my own feelings with that with that fact. <laughs> but you have a you have a son, so you yeah, you, so you, I, you I still started, get to. I started showing them to him early because you get yeah you get those collections you know the golden oldies collection or whatever and and you realize like with Monty Python or something else that there's a lot of stuff you didn't see or or actually wasn't as good as the classics but you it's all part and parcel of this thing that you and I I would show him stuff and he would. Like the singing frog cartoon or whatever, and yeah, even at a young age, they're digging it. So, and you also want to set the bar high, you know, because there, there's so much garbage. When they see the old Scooby Doo's, I'm just kind of like, Ugh, <laughs> fuck, I'm sorry. The new Scooby Doo is actually pretty good. The old Scooby Doo's were just terrible, <laughs> so awful. It not age well. I think uh, I think Kimmel said at the White House Correspondent Dinner, I'm pretty sure this was the joke, that Ron Paul looks like every unmasked Scooby-Doo villain at the end of the episode. That's, That's a fucking great joke. So true. They're doing a new Scooby-Doo that's actually pretty funny because it's a super self-aware... Yeah, like the, totally makes fun of the fact. The cartoon one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. They're 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 really good. They're really good because that they they've kept the good stuff and then got rid of all the garbage. Money. Do you think our generation needs a level of irony to appreciate things oh, that we just can't appreciate things for both how they are? Totally. I don't know how to get out of that. I feel like it's you know it's a post Seinfeldian thing that we just. It's great. It makes us all real clever, and it makes you know a, a show like Thirty Rock fantastic. But it's how do we. How do we just do a straightforward thing anymore without it? You know, how do you do romantic comedy unless Seth Rogen wrote it? You know what I mean? It's, sure. This is what, this is the language we speak now. Yeah. And uh, it's particularly, particularly for us older gentlemen, when I'm looking at what's going on in the net and what college guys are, are, are doing to make each other laugh, it's getting to a point where uh, we're getting so far away from just... The basic stuff that something like Blue and Grace looks quaint as hell, particularly the stuff between she and I, you know. Um, it, I don't, I don't know what to. Uh, I don't know how 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 ironic can we get? I don't know. I I kind of. Yeah, I'm almost a little jealous of an era where it was like it's okay to try and it's okay yeah. to care and look like you care and look like and it's okay to look like you're trying. But now it's just like, oh, whatever. I'm not. Oh, fuck. I'm just I'm fucking around. Sure. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah, exactly. I don't give a shit. Does everyone know I don't give a shit? I just yeah. want to make sure everyone knows I don't give a shit. Okay, good. Good. 
everything's exactly so right. all messed up. Exactly right. But you're doing a you're doing a you're doing a play now, so it's it's not. I feel like I feel like this is a safe zone, right? It is totally safe, and it's a, it's a it's a weird thing. It's a fifty year old play that is getting laughs of sheer recognition because it's 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 about a the, the race to see who's going to be the the nominee for uh, it's probably the Democratic can uh, the Democrats, but they don't. Gorbachev doesn't say it in the play, but it's very much a con- very conservative guy versus a very liberal guy, and I'm the conservative guy. And I've, I mean, I'm. What comes out of my mouth? Though this is a fifty year old play, I mean, it's it sounds like Santorum, it sounds like Mitt Romney. Uh, it's it's shocking, and and, and the, so little has changed. There's a joke about the Catholic Church and contraception that oh, wow. was ancient when we read it at the table in February, but three weeks later it was like a joke from Letterman the night before because it's just nothing's fucking changing. Right. You know, so that's that's an interesting thing into itself every night. Have you ever advanced the idea to Angela Lan... I have a theory about Murder, She Wrote, and I've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm sure she'd be open to hearing this. Uh, that is, there were 10 seasons of Murder, She Wrote? Maybe? I think there were 14. 14 seasons of Murder, She Wrote. So, 14 seasons, 14 seasons times 22 episodes per season. It's a few, couple, hundred, couple hundred episodes plus mm-hmm. of Murder, She Wrote. A woman in a small town is privy to or witness of hundreds of murders, which is most of the population of that town. Probably, yeah. Wouldn't you think that the whole story of Murder, She Wrote, anyone that close to all those murders had to have committed them? <laughs> And that Murder, She Wrote is a weird, deranged memoir of her sitting in a cell and thinking back and pinning those murders on other people because her psyche can't handle it. That has to be what happened with that that show. That's the Murder, She Wrote movie that you're going to write. Because that's that's the only way that we can ironically reinvent that particular show. Oh, shit, Uh, I just did it. Oh, Oh, now it's out there. God damn it. Uh, I think that's genius. I think that's absolutely genius. Uh, it was certainly not a town. I think by season three, you move out of that town, <laughs> don't you? If there were sixty-six murders, a really unlucky town. You get out. You yeah. get out. You don't. Sixty-six. <laughs> you know? Sixty-six. Six murders in two years. You know? It's like there's the ones where she leaves town but just calls in, yeah, yeah. like still murders going on there. Oh, sure thing, Mrs. Fletcher. <laughs> we just dug up three more bodies this week. Well, yeah. I didn't watch it. So uh, the, uh, the guy next door in the dressing room, Taken Matthews, what seventy? He's been around forever. He's great. He was the actor in. Uh, in the latest True Grit that sits opposite okay. the table opposite Hallie and won't let her have her uh, her her, uh, her money but uh, anyway he's a wonderful actor but he, he was saying he did like three or four murder she <laughs> he said I, whenever they went to Ireland I always did those ones I went, Ireland? I don't remember that I really I, I didn't remember that, it, 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 that she spanned the globe quite so much but yeah I, I think like especially in those last handfuls of seasons it was like you, it was clear that her deal involved like you'll only have to really be there for yeah. 10 of the 22 shows. We'll just do one day of raps where you're you're somewhere yes. talking on the phone. You're a writer, of course you'd be traveling. Murder she ghost wrote. <laughs> she was, murder, <laughs> murder someone alluded to. <laughs> so what uh, how long have you guys been doing the play and 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 how long is it We running? uh we started previous first of March, so we've done 2 months now and uh doing two more months. I think it's going to last longer. I'm I'm leaving July 8th cuz I Taking some time with uh, the family in the summer yeah. in Vancouver. Um, and then I've got this, this new show starting on TNT uh, in the summer, which I'm really hoping uh, goes. And if it goes, we shoot some more. It's called Perception. Nice. Nice. Uh, July 9th, it premieres on TNT. Tell, and me, I tell me your show, Eric. Tell me your show. It's 
very exciting. I, I am a neuroscience professor who is schizophrenic. Okay. At a small uh, university in Chicago. And, uh, and an ex, my ex-student comes back, Rachel Lee Cook, mm-hmm. uh, who's now with the FBI, and she brings me the, cha- the, the, the cases. They can't quite crack. Sure. So you need the, the, the crazy professor to solve it. But it's, it's a great character, and it's, uh, it's a really nice fit for TNT. If you, you know, people that like the closer, we're going to follow the closer. So it's, uh, it's real. I love playing this guy, Dr. Daniel Pierce. And, uh, and so it's, that's, that's, a, that's the big summer show. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. I hope people tune in. And do you do you, do you do you want to direct stuff too? Or are you happy acting? Or what I, else? What's your big at the p- moment? I'm quite happy acting, but I do have I, I've tried over the years to get a couple of things going that I wrote that I would like to direct. I think that's the main thing. I, I may I may direct down the road a, an episode of the sh- of the series if it lasts. Um, in the meantime, the things I'm most passionate about directing are things that I, you know, that I wrote. I wrote a short film years ago that I directed. That I loved that experience. What about you? You're, you're, you direct too? No, I don't ever want to direct. No, I just I write stuff and I produce stuff and I host stuff, but I don't. Directing is a whole other. I just I, I feel like the directors I see, they just you really have to be the linchpin of the entire production, um, and I, I just don't. That responsibility is not sexy to me. There isn't enough about. I don't have enough passion out of you. Like, yeah, I want all that. Yeah, and I and I know that I there are people who are better at it than I am. So well, and also, and in, in terms of what movies have become, it's you know my vision of what I would like to direct is Sex Lies and Videotape. You know? Right. But uh, then you see Iron Man, and you go, well, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't even know where to. I couldn't find my way to the, the dressing room. I wouldn't know what to do. So. It's become an entirely different world. The directors are—it's amazing what, uh, and and they're all they're doing is developing that taste in people. So that I don't know if they'll. Anyone's got the patience to watch Sex Lies of Video Day. I just I just worry that you know if I try to direct something and I try to put something onto a screen, I have that romantic idea in my head of like this is what it's going to look like, but it's sort of like a child's drawing. Yeah. Where I'm sure in the kid's mind, like this looks like a dog, <laughs> and this looks like a house. And that's where the smokestack goes. But then you look yeah. at it, and everything's like, "Oh, that's adorable that you thought that was that's all those things." Movie, yeah. yeah, and I feel like that's what they'd be like. Oh, Chris, that's adorable. <laughs> it's cute. Um, oh, he's almost a, he's almost human. He's almost human. I just think it's a different skill set than I than I have. Do you approach Do you approach acting with a director's brain, or a, I think I do. I think I uh, yeah. I think that that was something that. Uh, Helped a lot in Will and Grace was that I because Jimmy was always about story, story, story. That's how I always approached it. I see the big picture and I and I figure out where I fit into that. And I think a lot of actors do the opposite. It's like I'm all about my character. My character would do this here. I don't care that it's Times Square. That's what he do <laughs> right now, right here. That's what I I, I don't want to talk about. And whereas uh, I tend to kind of look at the whole thing and go, right now. This is what has to get accomplished in this scene. What what part does my character have in that? So I think I, I think that's directorial, you know, by by its nature. And do you feel comfortable fitting in with, you know, like coming into a cast with Candice Bergen and Angela Lansbury? Do you feel comfortable making kind of strong choices, or do you go? Well, I'm gonna I sit do. Back no, and... I do. Yeah, I, I think it's. Um, I probably wouldn't have 15 years ago, but but right now I feel like. I mean, my character is is an asshole. He really is, and that's fun. It's fun to walk in and just say, "I this is." This was on the page. This is what you're going to get. Um, and it's... And also, we're all... It's a very interesting cast because it's this is not, first and foremost, um, a laugh-out-loud comedy. But it turns out it sort of is, more than we thought. 
Um, it's you know, Gorbidal is cynical and he's and he's brilliant wit, but it's um, the movie, for instance, that was made from the play in '64 is not remotely funny. Our show is really funny, but then I, we all sort of realized the other day, well, it's John Larroquette, it's Candace Bergen, it's Michael McKeon, it's me. There's a lot of sitcom people in this show that yeah. know how to take what might be a dry, cynical, overwritten kind of line and turn it into something funny. And that's uh, so the result is it's a much more of an entertainment than we thought. It's it's a real crowd pleaser. Oh, that is that is that is kind of an attractive quality of a play is that you can kind of turn it into even though it's written. You can still kind of turn it into whatever you want. Well, yeah, and, and like for instance, the lead, the real, uh, you know, arguably the lead character is Larroquette's character, who has this this momentous decision to make. He's a very, uh, he's very Bill Clinton esque, I suppose, but he's a true intellect, um, and he is uh, he's really torn about these things. And, and a lot of what's written, it's very hard to make sound one hundred percent human. It's it's very uh, highfalutin Gore Vidal. Um, sort of wishful thinking that a politician might think and, and speak like this. But John knows how to turn that so it sounds not only human, but actually outright funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's, it's great. It's it's uh, it's great to listen to every night. Do you feel, did you feel comfortable with yourself before having a hit television show or were you, here's where I'm going with this. I feel like because of the business that we're in, because of the town that a lot of us live in, there's this idea like when you, you know, when I was younger, when I'd walk into a room I would sort of define myself by here's the show I'm on as opposed to hey I'm a person and I got yeah. you know I got maybe I have interesting things to say or I'm comfortable with myself. Uh, Do you ever get sucked in by that? Yeah, I think so. I think totally. You you want you always want something to to do that talking for you. You want right. you know what I mean? You you don't want I I particularly being Canadian I don't walk in and, and sort of promote my latest thing. I don't talk about what I. So un- it's nice when something's already doing that for you. You can walk in the room and say, hey, right. I love your show. Thank you. The conversation started. And I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> right. Um, that's, that's always a good thing. And, and yeah, I did feel once the, once, that, once the show took off that there was, I could relax into, I could figure out who I was a little bit more. Because I, until you have some degree of... of um, Blowback of of, of of success of understanding that you've achieved something. It's that's actors. We're just so driven when they're in their twenties. We're just trying desperately to make some sort of mark mm-hmm. uh, for lots of reasons. To for our, you know show our parents that we weren't crazy to choose this. Um, to get in with girls know, who dumped us. Girls who dumped us and um, <laughs> and the guys that bullied us to know that maybe their their, their wives are forcing them to watch the gay show now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Uh, 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 honey, this doesn't make me gay, right? <laughs> no, no, no. The fact that you asked that makes you gay. Wait a minute. I hated that guy in high school. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. No, he's kind of cute. <laughs> what? Um, there was football. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting, weird... Uh, I, I always kind of love this idea that, you know, we take these jobs that require us to not be insecure, but we're totally insecure about stuff. Totally. And, and, and also, I mean, this, this has always been the case, but more, never more so than now, this idea that fame has its own thing. It's weird. 
it's so weird that I can, you know, I can walk into a room and it's, oh, yeah, I, I like your show, but look, there's a real housewife from Beverly Hills. Or right. Look, that guy was cut from Survivor last week or whatever it is. And you go, but he, is that an achievement? I'm not sure. He, he only lasted three episodes of Survivor, but now he's famous. Right. And that's it. Whatever he has is enough to get a talk show or to be on the front of In Touch magazine. Right. And it, it's all the same now. It doesn't matter. It, it's... Uh, it's really strange, you know. For those of us, I always wanted to be defined by my by my achievements, at least in this business. But but now the word achievement doesn't have, have hold a whole lot of. Water. It's a different scale. Can, yep, it's a different scale. You can, I think the important thing is if you can just sort of weather the trend of that. Yeah, it'll all come back around. I think. I mean, the the one thing that I always. I was never a very good 20-year-old. I always wanted to be 30. I, wasn't, mm-hmm. I never took real advantage of being young and thinking young. And uh, I, I always assumed, well, I'll, I'll be a better actor and a, and a more secure person when I'm older. And um, when I see these, when I see young people sort of seizing it, I, I go, well, good for you. That's great. But for me, I always thought, I want to still be around. I want to be Chris Plummer. I want to be sure. Jim Hackman. I still want to be around and have, and have survived this ridiculous fucking business and do you feel like that now like when you when you start to get older like 30 35 40 are you sort of like uh 20 again 20 20 or do you are you looking ahead uh kind of both like you know i'm uh looking ahead but going wow what what is that i don't know what that is i don't know what the you know it depends on if series last and that kind of thing but i also look behind and i look back and go particularly during will and grace i think you know there's probably ways i could have Seize the day a bit more, but uh, what do you, why? What do you mean? During the during the, the hiatuses in particular. Oh, okay. You know? There's a couple of years I did things I was really proud of. I, I went I went to Broadway between the second and third season and did uh, did the Music Man, and that's mm-hmm. a great memory and it's a big reason that I'm here now. Um, but other summers I was like, eh, I'll take the summer off. And meanwhile, that would have been the time to try to get my little movie made that I wrote or whatever. I did. I did. Try, I certainly did try, but I I think. It's hard, particularly with the series that is doing well, and you get lo- you, you kind of forget that it's it's all going to go away. Everything goes away. <laughs> you know, all plants need to be watered, and, and everything needs to be constantly attended to, um, and that there are no guarantees, and and so it's it's an ongoing. Yeah, but that's hard because it probably takes you two seasons to feel comfortable, like your show's not going to get canceled. And then you want to just take a fucking breath because the, all of your career up to that point is just yeah. been like, I'm going to get fired. I'm not going to, I'm not, I may not work. And we definitely, I, I, I can't speak for the others. I definitely took a breath and, I, and I'm glad I did. I, I definitely enjoyed it. it. It was, the thing about that show, I think some people, like, you know, I've read a lot of what, what, what the company used to talk about when he was doing X-Files when he had six weeks off a year and he, it was just all nights in Vancouver in the rain shooting that right. show. Hard to enjoy What's happening in the zeitgeist with with your show? With, with us, we go to promote the show on a talk show, and we're talking about an episode we shot three weeks ago, and it's already happening, and it was very much alive, and and we only sh- shot four hours a, a, on a Tuesday night in front of a live audience, and you know Alec Baldwin came, and so it was very much a thing that was alive, and and we were aware of it, and I we tried our best not to take it for granted, you know. Yeah. We really tried to enjoy, particularly shoot night. You just enjoy. This thing we get to do. Well, the sitcom schedule is gorgeous. Like, I, he's like, it must be kind of. It's great. I'm sure it's great to be on a hit show like X Files in Vancouver. But 
Do you even know your shows? And they go, oh, your that's, show's a hit. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, I'm going to bed. I gotta yeah. go to bed. I gotta get up in three hours. Exactly. And, uh, so it's, uh, we definitely smelled the roses during that. <laughs> well, I think we're just about at the end of our time. I, I, I really hope that at some point at, during your show, uh, Michael McKeon and David Lander burst in the door and go, hello. Hello. Does that happen ever? <laughs> they don't. That's... The thing about McKeon, you can always get a good story out of him. If you brought up Laverne and Shirley, he'd have some good stories for you. He's, That's always nice. Yeah. That's always nice to hear. But, uh, God damn. He, they, I, he told me actually about those two characters that they uh, they brought those to Laverne and Shirley. They were not written characters that, that Michael and, and David got cast in. Lander and McKeon invented Lenny and Squiggy. <gasps> we're doing them in clubs as part of their act. And Gary Marshall said... We need them as the neighbors. Isn't that great? I mean, I just remember... First of all, I remember Laverne and Shirley spinning off from Happy mm-hmm. Days. And then I remember, like, a couple seasons in, those guys would burst through the door and the fucking applause break was, like, a minute long yeah. every time they would burst through the door. Yeah. And that was always something they kept... I, I remember uh, Everybody Loves Raymond would do that, keep that old thing of, of applause. We, Burroughs had it. He was like, oh, I don't want a lot of applause. So we'd let the audience <laughs> applaud and then we would use the next take without the applause because he didn't want... Uh, it didn't want the, that kind of self-awareness. Right. But, uh, but it was a big part of our, kid, our childhood. Every time the Fonz did anything, the audience would just cheer for a minute and a half. It was just, uh, yeah, I guess it was that sort of, that was in that transition between like, these are televised plays. Right. And it's okay to let people know at home that there is, you know, as opposed to the sort of canned laughter that just shows people like, here's where you're supposed to... Yeah, the laughter was always good. Laughter was real. We never had canned laughter. But it was the kind of... Uh, the, the self-congratulatory. Look who we got to right. start this week. The, Let's take a minute to acknowledge the fourth, the fourth wall. Um, well, thank you very much for hey, man, th- this. You. Is an amazing dressing room, by the way. Oh, this <laughs> is like the New York, very vertical. All these old, these old theaters. Everything it was just built up, and so uh, and the, the smaller the part it used to be. The, you know, the, so the chorus girls were on the top. You know, dressing room. They had to walk up nineteen. Sleep, sleep in a sink. But they're and they're small. But you, you know, you make them your own. And I love uh, this. They're, they're just yeah. so people just get a quick visual. It's a. It's kind of a. It, it's a narrow, uh, a little sort of a long room. There's a sink in the corner, a couch, and a, and a desk. Yeah, and that's it. It's it's all, and I got a window to uh, to the, the fire escape. And to be on the fire escape, we're looking at like the show Once is next door, and Seminar with Jeff Goldblum is beside that. And I got Stockard Channing on the uh, literally four theaters in a row, and across the street is Matthew Broderick and nice work if you can get it. And that's Forty Fifth Street. It's like it's the ultimate Broadway street. You feel like like that. This is what you come here for. You yeah, know? it's just to have neighbors that are all doing the same thing every night at the same time and. The, the streets are packed with people going to the it's great it makes you it makes you feel like it's still alive well thank you so much for Thanks, doing this man. and and uh, let me uh, welcome you uh, uh, from Canada thank uh, you very much and uh, and hopefully I'll, I'll get to see your show I'm only in town for a couple of days but I would like to come back and see it come back I'm here on the 8th excellent thank you of Robert. July I mean 8th of right. July come enjoy your burrito the best everyone man in New York if you can the best man bye y'all bye Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast was brought to you by our friends of the Comedy Bang Bang TV show. Yay! Watch the premiere episode June 8th at 10, 9 central in the PM on IFC. This episode is brought to you in part by Purina. Purina is dedicated to creating richer lives for pets and the people who love them. 
from helping older pets think like their younger selves to making cat ownership a possibility for more people than ever. Purina is helping pets thrive so they can live long, healthy, and happy lives. Purina has you covered for all your furry friends' needs, whether they meow or bark. From litter to treats to their best-in-class, nutrient-packed food with taste your pets will love. Purina's got your back at every stage of your pet's life. Your pet gives you the joy of the spring sunshine all year round. So today and every day, care for your pet with Purina. Your pet is Purina's passion. To learn more, head to Amazon.com backslash Purina.